Okay. Well, I'll start. It's uh, 9.30. So we're speaking, this is the fourth class on um, the third verse of the Shikshastakam. So I'll just begin. Om Ajnana Timirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshurun Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurve Namaha Siddhantot Palasar Nityarasikam Hamsam Vilasatmakam Audaryakya Sudam Sevakadanam Vishambhavakti Pradam Yachna Yukti Vichakshanam Tagabido Vaishishta Shaktya Sada Mande Hamtripurari Namakayatim Shri Bhakti Vedantinam Vande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nityanando Sahodito Gurudai Pushpavanto Chitrojando Tamundo Vande Ham Shri Ramakrishno Abhaya Charanasako Sukado Paramanando Sundaro Subalapriyo Hey Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinabandu Jagapate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostute Tapta Kanchana Gaurangi Radhe Vrinda Veneshwari Vishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Haripe Panchakalpatarubhyascha Kripa Sindhu Bhaevacha Patitanam Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the the fourth class on on um, the third verse of the Shikshastakam. So, just briefly to recap, um, I think what we've gone through in the first three classes was we initially just um, located the third verse in the Shikshastakam and talked about it in context there. Um, then we went and spoke about uh, where the, the third verse of the Shikshastakam is found in the Chaitanya Charitamrita. It's found in three different places. So we went through that and um, looked about you know, where the verse was found. And then we went, spoke a little bit about um, how the verse relate, relates to the stage of Nishta. This was Bhaktivinoda Thakur's insight that the, the, the verses of the Shikshastakam relate to the the progression of bhakti given by Rupa Goswami. So we spoke a little bit about that. And then <coughs> last class, I was just kind of going on about um, how this verse is, uh, you know, uh, essential in the, the kind of beginning, middle and end of our practice. Of course, there's no end in of the practice in, in, um, in bhakti in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. But um, I spoke a little bit about it, how it's useful in the beginning in the sense that um, you know, in a general sense, humility and tolerance endear one, but but more that, um, you know, in the very beginning, at, at the very least, one has to humble themselves, at least theoretically, before the teachings, and humble oneself before the guru. Might, one might have to use tolerance. Um, you know, the guru gives teachings and a framework and parameter in which to function, bhajana, kriya, and um, so one might have to apply a tolerance there to, to things that are maybe pleasurable and things that are maybe unpleasurable in the context there of, of, of um, serving the guru. And then maybe more of the middle part of one sadhana, the verse applies very much in the sense of providing um, kind of like the, the uh, defense against um, anarthas and aparads and offenses, the things that kind of check our progress. And that we're really dealing with in the, 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 you know, early to middle stages of bhakti leading up to nishta. And this verse is kind of, uh, you know, like the four defenses against, against um, what's impeding us from getting to offenseless chanting. So it's a very um, important verse in that sense. And then so today I'll just talk a little bit about how we find this verse um, in the, the so-called end of our practice. Although, like I said, there is no end per se, but how we see this verse applies in the lives of, or, or in the, the, the higher stages of bhakti and in the lives of, um, you know, great, great devotees. We spoke about that a little bit. We spoke about that in terms of Rupa and Sanatana Goswami as well last time. Um, so speak about it a little bit in that context. And then I'm going to go and finally go line by line and maybe draw a little something out about um, the qualities of humility, tolerance, um, a little bit of grass and trees and, and whatnot. So I'll just I'll just start there. Um, 
you know, like we saw that that uh, the verse was essential kind of in the beginning <clears throat> of taking up the process and in the middle. And we also find it very prominent kind of, you know, in the perfection of practice. I, I don't want to say the end of practice, but in the perf perfection of practice. So we see it's a very invaluable teaching, like all activities in bhakti, um, uh, you know, it's never given up at the perfectional stage. Um, it never becomes redundant. These qualities of humility and tolerance, um, offering respects to others, not not wanting for res respect for oneself, um, you know, the, these never become redundant. They apply in the highest realm as they do in the, the beginning realms. Karm, Gyan, Yoga, these types of practices differ very much from Bhakti in the sense that the, the result... Um, is not carried over into perfection. So the practice is is to achieve something. Um, so that that's not the case with what we're doing here. What we're doing here in bhakti, we will also be doing there. Um, so here and there in bhakti are only kind of a matter of perspective. Um, it, one, one doesn't do bhakti to achieve anything. Um, so in the same way, this verse doesn't kind of disappear on on achieving these higher stages. Gurmash recently in a, a class, I've forget which one it was, but it was in the last kind of month or so, said that, you know, in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the sadhana, the practice, and the sadhya, the, the goal, you know, are, are very much the same the same thing. One is kind of a refinement of the other, but the sadhana never disappears in the sadhana. In Goloka, this hearing and chanting, um, deity seva, it's all going on in a more refined and perfect form. We hear, you know, the kirtan goes on with the, the, the sakas saying, Ram, Ram, Mahabha. Krishna Krishna Mahabhagya, like that the devotees chanting the names we see deity worship in, in um, there's a lovely example given of Govardhan how he's offering all the upachars of worship or even Rohini offer you know using the lamp and, and whatnot so all of these things that we're doing here we will also be doing there it's a shift of pers per per perspective um, and like Gumaraj had, had made this point that this verse the Trinata P verse is Mahaprabhu's condensed and distilled teaching on the sadhana sad, uh, sadhya tattva. So we see it in the superlative devotees. We see these qualities um, in in the superlative, superlative devotees. They are actually, you know, like we saw with Rupa and Sanatana and whatnot, that they are the personification of humility, mercy, compassion, pridelessness. Um, you know, uh, advanced devotees are characterized by by seeing Krishna um, everywhere and therefore offering respect to everyone and everything. Um, of course, except one place, which they tend not to see. They tend to feel themselves devoid of, of this, but um, you know, they're showing their great humility in the sense. That's the definition of humility that's given, um, <clears throat> given throughout the <clears throat> scripture, pardon me, is um, the, the state of mind in which one always thinks oneself exceptionally low um, even though one is endowed with all good excellences, all, all good qualities. So this is something that um, um, has been defined by Sanatana Goswami. This has been repeated by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu through the pen of Krishnas Kaviraj. Um, so, you know, we see this repeatedly in examples of great devotees. Krishnas Kaviraj, you know, although <clears throat> reservoir of all good qualities refers to himself as lower than a worm in stool, uh, we we saw this in Rupa and Sanat and Goswami that we spoke about in in the last class and and and, and you know throughout all the all the devotees Rupa and, Rupa and Sanat and you know they genuinely felt <clears throat> this way that although they were extremely qualified it's, it, in in all regards material and spiritual um, you know they felt that that Jagai and Madai were actually more innocent than themselves they saw only only the good qualities. Even in Jagai and Madai, they saw, they on, they saw only the good qualities in Jagai and Madai um, and really downplayed their shortcomings. Um, when, you, when you hear them comparing themselves to Jagai and Madai in, in, when they're speaking to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, they, they, you know, they, they shine a light on what, what you know, so-called good qualities Jagai and Madai had and, and really down, downplayed their bad qualities. You know, this is something that we should do also. Um, you know, as everybody in the world is a mixture of, of you know, good and bad qualities. This is a world of, of duality, after all. Um, everybody's a mixture of, of qualities and faults. And, 
if if you if one finds oneself fo- focusing on the faults uh, or meditating on the faults or shortcomings of somebody, um, we should be very concerned because this is not the example that's given by you know those that we want to emulate. What we meditate on shapes our our consciousness and identity. Um, it's it's you know focusing on somebody somebody's faults or somebody's mistakes or somebody's shortcomings is it's like a very a very perverted form of of meditation. It's like you become possessed by by the bad qualities that you're you know that you're you're focused on. Um, the example is always given. You know when you you point at someone's bad qualities, there's one finger pointing at them, but three fingers pointing back at at oneself. So finding faults in other people is probably one of the most, you know, finding faults to say is like probably more of a fault than the fault that you're finding in the other person, if that makes any sense. You know, the uh, it's probably more detrimental than the actual fault. Fault. So, you know, at the pinnacle of perfection and these great devotees, of course, we find, um, we find these things and we see it in, in what is the, you know, the highest the highest tier of devotees in the gopis um and that is that in the sense the gopis you know they they um possess the highest wealth right the treasure of prem um the wealth prem yet they feel themselves totally impoverished and poor in spirit um they're very humble about their position the whole venu gita um is a kind of a, a night a wonderful example of the of the gopis because they they the it's them glorifying um others everyone you know they're glorifying the clouds they're glorifying the the flute they're glorifying the deer um so they go on glorifying others um you know like as as is mentioned in the in the third verse and um glorifying the qualities in others and seeing other others as reservoirs of bhakti so this is a you know the the real definition of a superlative devotee yet they feel themselves devoid of it and they're, they're lamenting kind of their their lack of bhakti while seeing it in everyone and everything else. Padmanabha Maharaj gave a really nice series of classes on this when he was here not so long ago. Very in-depth, several, you know, 20 or more classes. It's a nice thing to listen to. So in the end, you know, it's, um, you know, in, in this perfection of our practice, humility, glorification of the other, compassion, all these qualities that are mentioned in the, the fir- first there are, in the third verse, sorry, are there in their most exalted form. So, so there we see, you know, this verse is, is, is threaded through the entirety of our practice on into infinity. Um, and so now I just wanted to go through the verse line by line and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, each line and, and what's said there. So let's see if I have... Anyhow, so of course it goes Trinada Pisunichina, Taroriva Sahishnuna, Amanina Manadena Kirtaniya Sadahari. So we should be more humble than a blade of grass, we should be more more tolerant than a tree. We should not be looking for respect, but be willing to offer respect to all others. And in that way we can constantly chant the name of Hari. So um Again, these four symptoms are observed in the devotees. Um, These are the symptoms of the the devotee who chants without offense. Um, The first line describes uh, this natural humility of the devotee um, because they're completely free, they're completely detached from from sense gratification and, and, um, and, and the false ego. So it's a very natural humility. Um, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, of course, defined humility as lack of the enjoying spirit. So we see this natural humility born of of, of complete detachment from from the enjoying spirit. The second line describes, um, in the context of, of of kind of under the umbrella of the tolerance of a tree, um, Bhakti Vino describes the second line as descri- as as a pure compassion devoid of envy. So within the context of tolerance, there's this pure compassion devoid of envy. The third is a purity of heart, um, free from, from false ego, free from the desire for recognition, which is pratishta. So we're not, look, you know, not looking for recognition. And the fourth, of course, is an attitude of respect towards everyone, you know, uh, God, being, God residing in everybody in that sense. And this is, of course, these things are... Um, 
you know, are blocked by the false ego. They're the way to dismantle the false ego, but they're, you know, they're also blocked by the false ego. The idea that I am the center, I am the enjoyer. Like the Gita says it, when describing the um, demoniac natures, um, but it's a really, it's a description of, of, um, of the false ego and, and self-centeredness. Ishvaro ham ham bogi sudo ham balabansuki. The famous line there where it says, you know, I am the Lord, I am the enjoyer, I am successful, powerful, and happy, and it, it goes on. Um, but Bhaktisiddhanta states that, you know, he, you know, referring to the false ego and, and sense gratification, that this type of thinking is a problem because those who are intoxicated with material enjoyment, with sense enjoyment, can never acknowledge their own insignificance. He says, as far as sense enjoyers are concerned, they have no perception of their insignificance. Tolerant, tolerance is almost absent from their character. They are unable to give up their false ego and material prestige. No material sense enjoyer is inclined to offer respect to another material sense enjoyer. Their nature is to be envious of one another. So these these qualities are a way to, to, to dismantle the false ego, and but the false ego also is you know, preventative of, of, of um, uh, cultivating these things. And we find, you know, for this reason, we find in all the great traditions of the world, of all the great religious traditions of the world, that, that um, these qualities, along with the dismantling of the false ego, are found. And like Gumraj says, um, you know, for a tradition to kind of be, um, to be a truly spiritual tradition, it must be based on ego effacement and we you know we see these two things go hand in hand a cultivation of these qualities of compassion and humility and tolerance general sense of golden rule they go hand in hand with ego and ego ego effacement and you know this is what's being described in the, the third verse in a larger sense um you know all these qualities fall under the, the this umbrella of, of the golden rule, which is kind of like a name that's been given to, to you know, the kind of uh, the idea that these these qualities found in the third verse are, are and along, like I said, hand in hand with ego face and are kind of found in all the traditions, all the spiritual traditions of the world. The idea of tolerance, compassion, treating others as one would like to be treated, um, it's found, you know, and emphasized, and because the, the these qualities and ego effacement and um, the lack of the enjoying spirit go hand in hand, we find them um, we find them emphasized by the great teachers throughout the world. Um, you know, uh, not because they are like um, just kind of moral constraints or um, moral injunctions or this idea of lack of lack of the enjoying spirit is because a bunch of grumpy old men don't want us to be happy don't want us to enjoy you know to you know don't want us to enjoy the world but it's because the, the by practicing the golden the golden rule by by cultivating these qualities aimed at um at, at ego effacement um uh you know it well, it's a these qualities are kind of a, a practical form of ego effacement, and so ultimate. So I mean, it's it, we can talk about ego effacement, but to have a kind of method to do it by placing the other before oneself. So these these are kind of like a, these qualities found in the third verse, and these qualities found in the golden rule are kind of a practical um, practical form of ego effacement, and you know ultimately lead to the realizations. Of, of one's real position so that you know they dismantle the false ego but they they also lead to one's true kind of ontological position so the, this is like you know a great um a great potential a great happiness um to to to, to find one true one's true self and that's why we find the great faith traditions of the world emphasize these things not because they're uptight but because they lead to ego effacement which leads to us finding our you know the situation in which we can truly be happy and and um, and, and and you know find true peace and happiness, um, and that of course is on the circumference. So we have to you know dismantle the false ego in order to shift ourselves out of the center. And when we find ourselves positioned along the circumference with Krishna in the center, well, we'll find ourselves to be quite um, you know quite happy and peaceful. So the practice of these qualities 
it dethrones ourselves from from the erroneous idea that we are the center, that we are the Ishwar, Ishwar Oham Hambogi, um, from the center because it's it's a reliable way to put ourselves in uh, you know in our proper place because it requires to consider when when we practice these qualities and cultivate these qualities, it um it requires us to consider putting the other's point of view before our own and to put ourselves into somebody else's position. So this knocks us off our center and, and you know, uh, gives us a different perspective. Also, you know, it asks us to curb our own desires and to put somebody else's desires before ours, or somebody else's needs before ours. So it, it, by this, it, you know, it knocks ourselves out of the center and it shows us that perhaps our desires um, don't, have quite as much value as we think they do when we make a conscious effort to abandon abandon this me first mentality um we're not annihilating ourselves or destroying ourselves but we'll find that our perspective shifts and our the you know our horizons open up and um to to a much kind of more large and beautiful sense of self gumars talks about you know the, uh, the the self expands through giving right um so it's ego effacement is not a negative thing it's a positive thing so trinata peace being humble like a blade of grass the first line beautiful um beautiful poetry we all know it so truna means straw grass whatnot um this is the word that's used when we see the devotees putting straw between their teeth as an act of humility before off offering obeisance is truna and also uh, Trinavartas comes to mind too, who's the demon, right? right the wind demon. So Trinavarta is the wind demon that stirs up all the, all the um, straw and dust on the street, making a big commotion. Going, he goes way big up into the air, kind of big man, you know, big man in the air. Look at me. So Trina, straw, Trina apisunichena. So to be, to be humble, as a blade of grass. Now, like I mentioned, humility is defined by our charyas. Um, uh, Sanatana Goswami in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita defines it thus, wise men define dainya, humility, as the state in which one always thinks of oneself as an exceptionally incapable and low, even when endowed with all excellences. And, and Sanatana Goswami says that this is the very root of devotional service, utter humility. It's an essential pre prerequisite. It's not just a, a quality um, that's that's helps bhakti, but it's actually at, at the root um, and a prerequisite. Mahaprabhu describes it very similarly when he expands on it in, in um, his, his prayers of instruction in the chapter in Chaitanya Charitamrita. He says that the devotee is very exalted, but he thinks himself lower than the straw on the ground. And although the most exalted, he is prideless and gives respect to all respect to others. So this is all, if we remember from last class when I was telling the story of Rupa and Sanatana, this is the way that um, Mahaprabhu described Rupa and Sanatana. He said, for this reason, Krishna will bless you very soon, will deliver you very soon. So one could see this, um, you know, this lower than straw on the street as a very unfortunate or undesirable position, but actually it's very fortunate. And, you know, Krishna himself is actually very fond of grass. He spends a lot of time thinking about grass, <laughs> thinking about where he can bring his cows next to pasture. You know, here we put a, we, we, a lot of our mind right now in the dry scene is, is in, in, in to taking care of our pastures, taking care of our grass. So Krishna's mind, you know, is, is very much on grass. He likes it very much because it feeds his cows. So he's, he's preoccupied with finding new, new grass for his cows and whatnot. So being a piece of grass is not such a bad thing, especially in, in Vrindavan. The grass in Vrindavan is very, very exalted. Um, the kumkum that was on Krishna's feet, we learn about this in, in, the, in the Venu Gita, the kumkum that was on Krishna's feet or sorry, it was on, on the gopi's breasts and then transferred to Krishna's feet, actually falls and stains the grass of Vrindavan. And, and for the um, Bulindia women, the, the Aboriginal women of Vrindavan, this, this is, becomes reverential for them. They worship this grass. So being lower than a piece of grass is not a bad thing. You know, grass is actually a very useful, uh, useful commodity. Uh, for one, um, it feeds, feeds the cows and is transformed into lovely milk and all those um, subsequent products. Um, grains come from grass. 
you know, I'm not sure if rice is actually considered a grass. I think so. Yeah. It's it is. It, it I, I just heard it is. Um, and certainly it's it's you know very useful and and you know feeds the world basically. Grass feeds the world. Um, grains are are what we survive on. It's useful in terms of um, many things. You know, we can think about it, thatched roofs. People have been making their houses that way. It's offered shelter and protection to people. And of course, bamboo is a grass, and bamboo is what Krishna's flutes are made out of. So it's a very, it's a very um, dear life form to Krishna. Um, but probably the most the most important quality of the grass is that that truly um, truly places it in a that we can think of it in a superior position to ourselves, um, not in a in a artificial way. Is that the grass has a kind of a natural natural and reasonable ego in relation to itself. On the other hand, we have a false ego that is like totally out of proportion and totally out of control. Bhaktivinoda gives a meditation on this idea. He says that although grass is mere matter, still it has a natural and reasonable ego in respect to its material size. But my ego, made up of, of, of the gross and subtle bodies, is inappropriate, presumptuous, and has nothing to do with my pure constitutional nature. So the ego of the grass is appropriate and proportionate you know, to its size, but my ego is totally unreal. Therefore, it's only proper for me to become more humble than a blade of grass. Um, we're described, the soul, the jiva is described as anuchetanya. So it's consciousness, but it's infinitesimal consciousness. The soul, I think, in the, in the um, Upanishads is described as one ten thousandth the size of the tip, the tip of a hair. Um, and there are innumerable souls, infinite souls. So, so the position of a, grade, uh, a blade of grass amongst the entirety of the lawn, you know, um, is, is a kind of a much more befitting, um, a much more befitting identity. The false ego is like, you know, carrying around I heard this this example by I forget who somebody who was suffering from a, anyways he he said uh, you know the false ego is like carrying around a bag of hammers so you can only you can imagine you know a big sack with 40 hammers in it how uncomfortable it would be there's this movie called um the mission I don't know if you guys have seen it it's real good it's got Robert De Niro and and uh Jeremy Irons in it and it's about some missionaries that go Christian missionaries that go you know, in, in early colonial times, go into Brazil or in that in that area in the Amazon to start a, a convent. And the character that Robert De Niro plays had had murdered his brother before. And in penance of that, he was like dragging this giant bag full of like shovels and candlesticks and, you know, hammers basically through the jungle. And it was this huge austerity and and discomfort yeah. so it, it makes me think of that he he tried to climb up a, they had to go up a waterfall you know and his bag slipped and he had to go and get it and anyhow so the the, the false ego is is just like carrying around a, um, a bag of hammers it's such a burden um, you know this need to feel that we're important that we're you know that we that we're, our position is such that we constantly need to be on the defensive um, constantly needed to be protecting ourselves, pr pr protecting our position, ultimately from death. But I mean, it's guaranteed. the The false ego will fail. It's a, it's a, a lost cause. Death will come for sure. And yet we put so much, um, so much uh, effort into uh, propping up this this bag of hammers. So, you know, what's being said here is, it's better to practice humility because. In fact, it's very natural. It's not an imposition. It's a very natural um, state of being in, in the context of chanting the holy name. Um, Gumaraj in his in his commentary gives you know there's two types of humility, kind of a lower end of humility and a higher end of humility. Humility on the on the lower end comes um, in the second verse when when we find the word durdaivam, our misfortune is that we're not able to kind of experience all the ecstasy that's in the holy name because of our offenses. But if one chants while trying to give up offenses, um, you know, primarily the offense of inattention, which is kind of the, according to Bhaktivinoda, the root of all offenses, um, you know, so we try to give up offenses by coming in contact with the holy name while while trying to pay attention, we will start to drift towards Namabas. 
Um, Namabas is, is like the dawning twilight of the holy name. Instead, of, we'll, we'll drift away from Namaparad to Namabas. Um, you know, by, by paying, basically it means by paying attention. So we know that um, Krishna's name and, and himself are the same. Namas Chintamani Krishna Chaitanya Rasa Vigraha so we know that the name and the name are the same so what are we doing when we're chanting we're, we're calling Krishna and he's there um, so uh, uh, you know if you call somebody and then you invite them to your house then you should give them attention when they come they've, they've made the effort to come um, and if you don't if you're inattentive and it, you're, you're calling them but you're ignoring them well you know I mean just in day-to-day -day life this would be considered quite rude so, um, so we, if one pays attention um, while chanting, or at least tries to the best of one's ability, you know, naturally, just by being in his presence, in the presence of, of, of the name, one will, will see one's position and one will see Krishna's position. It will be evident, you know, who he is and who we are, and humility will arise very, very naturally. It's not a, a forced uh, or imposed realization you know and and accor accordingly as we we realize his position and our position fear will disappear there will be no threat there will be no death only you know only his protection so so first there's this kind of humility of remorse and um contrition um from you know being in, in a, a kind of being in the exploitative position not taking advantage of the holy name um and, and this is the humility by, you know, this is the humility that will, will um, remove obstacles and, and make one fit to receive more and more grace. So it's not the full face of humility, um, but it, it arises in the mind um, when one compares the generosity of the Holy Name and, uh, and one's kind of resistance to, to giving up offenses. So, but in, in this, this, uh, the, this context of humility, um, we also have the higher, higher type of humility. And this is the humility that arises directly from the soul. So this is the humility of, kind of what I was speaking about actually, it's the humility of realizing our position and Krishna's position. So um, it's the, the humility that comes from the infinitesimal, um, Anu Chaitanya, coming in contact, you know, with the infinite. So we realize what it means to be finite and what it means for Krishna to be infinite. And this, this is, you know, a very natural humility will arise. The humility, which is the lack, excuse me, lack of the enjoying spirit. Um, Krishna, you know, he says, Bhoktaram yagya tapasam sarva loka maheshwaram suhridam sarva bhutanam gyatva mam shanti murichati. So, you know, he's the enjoyer, he's the incenter, he's the center. Um, and this is the realization that will come by spending good quality time with the holy name and paying attention to the holy name while, we're, while we've invited him. Um, we'll re this realization that Krishna is the enjoyer and the center. And I'm his friend and I'm properly situated on the circumference. So it's a very natural... Um, natural form of humility and we see this level of humility in people like Rup, Sanat and Krishna Skaraj, all the great devotees, people who actually have something to be proud of. They, uh, you know, they actually have these, um, you know, they, ha they have these attainments, they have these, um, you know, th they have these attainments, they have something to be proud of, yet they have this deep kind of abiding sense of humility because they have the, you know, real realization. Um, of who Krishna is and who they are. So in the words of Sanatana Goswami, again, in, uh, this is, again, in the, in the um, Brihad Bhagavatamrita, there's a few nice, nice, very, very nice verses on humility there in the chapter called Prema. So we see how humility is really intertwined with Prema itself. He says that intelligent persons should carefully cultivate speech, behavior, and thinking that fixes him in utter humility and anything that stands in the way of this, he should avoid. So it's a very, he's, he's giving some importance there. Then in its highest reach, where we see humility as an inherent characteristic of bhakti, not something that, that um, 
you know, is it either kind of some kind of prerequisite or, or for Bhakti, he says, um, Dainya, humility, at its most exalted comes forth, comes forth when Prema reaches full maturity as it did in the women of Gokula when they were separated from Krishna. When Dainya fully matures, Prema unfolds without limit. And so we see Dainya and Prema acting in a relationship in which each is both cause and effect. So this is where humility in its in its highest form so tarori basahishnuna the second line more tolerant than a tree so when you think about trees i mean generally everywhere trees are considered to just be to be beautiful you know when you buy a when you buy a new house you want to plant a tree have a nice tree in the front yard of your house um so you know, we, we've planted many trees, beautiful trees, flowering trees, fruit trees, all different kinds of trees. Um, so th this, it, what it means is that this quality of tolerance is very, very beautiful. Um, um, this tolerance is extended into mercy by, and compassion by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and by, um, by Bhaktivinoda when they describe the qualities of the tree. So trees are very beautiful. Tolerance is a very beautiful quality. And um, in this tolerance, they say, well, they say that the, the tree is so tolerant, it tolerates, if we're, we're, we're to meditate, here especially, we can see right now, it's so hot. The difference between being in the shade of a tree and just outside of that shade is quite significant. So the tree's very tolerant, tolerant. It tolerates the scorching sun. It tolerates wind, rain. It tolerates snow if we're in, in the northern hemispheres. Um, uh, and so on. It tolerates dogs urinating on it, um, all kinds of things. But it's so tolerant that it doesn't it doesn't ever neglect to shade or feed or um, you know uh, offer fragrance or whatever that type of tree is to the person who comes to it, even to the person who com comes to cut it down. So this is where Bhaktivinoda is drawing out this idea of mercy from it. Um, and, and we're told that the devotees are more tolerant than the trees. Like that's what this verse is saying. One should be more tolerant than a tree. Um, that they do good to, to both the friend. The devotees are supposed to do good to both the friend and enemy alike. Just like a tree. But um, this, is, this is compassion free from envy. So to, bear, to want the very best for the very worst. This is the character, characteristic of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And a characteristic of you know, of his followers, so more tolerant than a tree. Mahaprabhu, in his description, describes, he, he describes his tolerance in two ways when describing the tolerance of a tree. He says that when being cut, it doesn't protest. We see this in the great saints like like Saint Jesus and Haridas Thakur, so I'm sure we're familiar with all those stories. And then even when the tree is suffering, even when the tree is drying up and on the verge of death it doesn't ask for water from anyone and actually um, it's just so fixed in its place it's the very personification of nishta and that you know the the, the 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 tree is like the personification of the stage which this verse is about it's the very personification personification of nishta trees are rooted firmly in the ground um, they have nowhere to go they're just kind of standing there fixed you know, in place, eternally stretching for the sun, eternally, um, you know, offering offering themselves to others. The trees will never, you know, get up and go and leave to pursue their own personal desires. Um, and it says, so when, when you're in the ashram, you, you, you can have reverence for the trees thinking, oh, they'll never leave, you know. <laughs> the trees will never leave. I may leave because I have some things that I need to do, but the trees will never leave. So... The point is that in, in you know when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gives this description is that the, the trees are being especially when he's talking about um, you know even when they're on the verge of dying or or being dried up in drought they still give it's you know the point here is that um, that the trees are being generous even in times of hardship and that's something that we can um, you know something that we can learn from because that's not so easy it's 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 very easy to be generous um when we're doing well it's very easy to be generous when you're affluent but it's not so easy to be generous 
when you know when you yourself are um, in a position of hardship but that's what we see from the trees that's what we see from great devotees like Prabhupada I mean I think of this like the video of him in in his last days where he's you know on his on his deathbed and he's still recording the Bhagavatam you know he's still giving his teachings even as his body is drying up like a tree um, you know he he really personifies this generosity of the trees and our scriptures are just chock full of glorification of trees um, you know the tree is something that's very dear to Krishna and very dear to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as well just as the grass was you know as an entity so it's trees are like grass is worthy of emulating trees also are very worthy of emulating Krishna really is a force God after all I mean his his personal life takes place in the forest Vrindavan the, and the 12 forests um, his land is covered by trees, kalpa vriksha trees. Now, kalpa vriksha trees, you know, um, we say bancha kalpa tarubhyascha, so kalpa vriksha trees. This, he's surrounded by these givers, whether they're trees or, or devotees, um, like like we say in the pranam mantra to the devotees. And Krishna is very affectionate towards these trees. He, he's very affectionate towards his devotees as well. But in, you know, in the Bhagavatam, there's this very beautiful part where Krishna is kind of like caressing and touching the leaves and the fruit um, glorifying them and it uh, it's worth reading this glorification Krishna's Krishna himself glorifies the trees and kind of gives us an idea how to think about them um, so it's just where is it here it's just I'm gonna read it for you it's just at the end of the chapter of Krishna stealing the gopis garments so you know he kind of brings to life um, these definitions in the, in the Bhagavatam here, these definitions given by Mahaprabhu, um, the, these explanations given by Bhakti Muno Thakur kind of really, really come to life here in this part. So I'll just read the English, but um, it's really nice. Krishna said, Lord Krishna says, O Stoka Krishna, O Amshu, O Sridam, Subal, O Arjuna, O Vrishaba, O Jasvi, Deva and Varutapa, just see. These greatly fortunate trees, whose lives are completely dedicated to the benefit of others, even while tolerating the wind, rain, heat, and snow, they protect us from these elements. So this is kind of a nice verse, actually, here, because here we see a certain again talking about how the you know our practices never end, um, that we'll find kirtan in perfection, find kirtan in the lila. Here we find a very interesting form of kirtan. This is. Um, a very form of, interesting form of kirtan in the spiritual world. This is Parishad kirtan. This is so we know there's like Nam kirtan, Nam Rupa Guna, Lila kirtan, but there's also Parishad kirtan where you do kirtan of the associates of the Lord, of the dear ones of the Lord. And here Krishna's call, you know, he, I mean, he, you know, calling out the names of all of his friends. So it's very nice, and he says. Just see these greatly fortunate trees whose lives are completely dedicated to the benefit of others. Even while tolerating the wind, heat, and snow, they protect us from the elements. Then he goes on to say, Just see how these trees are maintaining every living entity. Their birth is successful. Their behavior is just like that of great personalities. For anyone who asks anything from a tree never goes away disappointed. So here, we see again, we see the similarity between trees and sadhus. You know, sadhus tolerate all of our foolishness and silliness, and they, they still give nectar. They still give it out to it, just like the tree here. Um, then he says, these trees fulfill one's desires with their leaves, flowers, fruits, their shade, root, barks, bark, and wood, and also with their fragrant sap, ashes, pulp, and shoots. So with their very everything, um, with their very everything, they... they um, they offer themselves. And Mahaprabhu actually repeats this verse in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, chapter 9, which is about the, you know, the great tree of devotional service. Um, he glorifies trees and in fact takes, he, he's described as taking the job of a, of a gardener, well, of, of, of a tree planter, and he begins to grow this garden of trees in Navadweep. Um, so, of course, it's a, it's a poetic device. He planted the tree of devotional service and became its gardener. He protected it. We talked about, you know, how one protects one, one's bhakti lata bij with the, you know, uh, a wall of humility and whatnot. So he protects it um, and, and waters it. And inconceivably, Mahaprabhu 
became the gardener and also the tree itself, the trunk and branches and stuff. This is, of course, a metaphor for the society of devotees and their kind of compassionate uh, distribution of love. So in the context of this description in the Chaitanya Charitamrita of the devotional tree, um, he's, he's using this example um, to follow of compassion, tolerance, and mercy. And he quotes this verse and actually, uh, you know, re repeats these instructions of Krishna, um, this verse 35, and then he, re he repeats this verse 33 that I said before, just see how these trees are maintaining every living entity. So with their whole being, and then he goes, it is the duty of every living being to perform welfare activities for the benefit of others with his life, wealth, intelligence, and words. Thus, moving amongst the trees whose branches were bent low by their abundance of twigs, fruits, and flowers, and leaves, Lord Krishna came to the Yamuna River. So trees are very dear to Krishna and very instructive. He himself instruct, um, instructs us on them. And as they are affectionate to to Krishna, the trees are also very uh, uh, held in, held very dear by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as well. Um, Mahaprabhu shows his affection to the trees in a very mystical, um, very mystical pastime when he was traveling, and he was traveling through the forest of Dandakaranya, and um, and uh, there were it was Saptapala, seven seven. Um, seven famous big old palm trees and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu I guess he was a, what we would call a tree hugger so he went and he hugged the trees and the trees were sent back to Vaikuntha so emulating the disposition and qualities of the trees you know should endear us to, 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 to Mahaprabhu and you know perhaps one day we'll, we will be lucky enough to receive his embrace um, and go back to Vaikuntha so in our practice of tolerance, we'll first take the shape of, again, this idea of lower practice of tolerance and higher practice of tolerance. In the, in the, in, um, it'll first take the shape of um, tolerating our minds and tolerating other people's minds as well. So this is the tolerance that we find in the Gita, Matra, Sparshas, Tukonteya, Sitoshna, Sukha, Dukada. The appearance and disappearance of happiness and distress are like the appearance and disappearance of summer and winter. Um, they arise from sense perception and we must learn to tolerate them without being disturbed. So this is, of course applies to all the duality generated by the perception of the senses, good, bad, happy, sad, hot, cold. Um, and this is the essential, an essential practice in devo devotional communities itself. We have to learn to tolerate each other. Um, trees are um, very much, you know, as much as they are above the ground, they are also below the ground. Um, they have root systems that I think often are as large as their canopy. Um, and like here in Madhavan, in tropical soil, this is a constant kind of risk of, um, of erosion. So, you know, we, we, when you clear land, you, you run this risk because, um, you know, you kill the tree and the root system is what's holding the, the ground together. And, and very much um, in devotional communities and in all community, really, um, tolerance is what, what holds the communities together. It's really at the roots of holding the community, community together. Uh, trees also purify the air and I think, you know, they create oxygen. So again, tolerance purifies the air, whereas the opposite of tolerance, criticism, really is, is air pollution, pollutes the air. So by practicing this tolerance, not just to, to avoid negative and pursue the positive things, we stop kind of being tossed by the, the mental calculations of this is good, this is bad, etc. And Gumrash says that, you know, we, an experience of reality unfettered by the mind will come. So even though this is a very tall order, it's kind of an essential principle of spiritual practice. So that's kind of the lower end of tolerance and the higher end standard of tolerance um, you know, from the tolerance in the realm in the mind, kind of to the tolerance in the realm of the soul. And this is where a devotee's happiness comes from, um, more from bhakti and aparad than, than just from kind of tolerating one's karma. So one would see Krishna in their life as showing them mercy by sometimes giving them happiness, sometimes giving them, them distress, always kind of in the context of engaging them in service. Um, so that's that's described in the Srimad Bhagavatam. Let me see if I can find that verse fast. Um, 
Anyhow, it doesn't matter. So uh, that that's just a verse that describes this kind of this higher level 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 of tolerance, and one being kind of fit to receive um, mukti pada, bhakti pada. So then the next word we find in the in the text is amanina. So expecting no admiration, avoiding the pride of a sadhu, the pride of, of being a humble and tolerant sadhu. How do you do this? By offering respects to others, manadena. So amanina manadena. So although ornamented with all the good qualities of the demigods, as the devotees are described to be, we should um, you know, avoid pride at all costs, pratishta, the desire for recognition. Um, it's very frowned upon <laughs> by by our teachers. It's described. I think it's, it's described as like uh, the stool of a pig. And in a, maybe a more um, politically incorrect way, it's described as a an outcast dog eating woman dancing in the heart. So may, that's may, maybe a little in, not so politically correct nowadays. But it's it, it's not given any any room at all. So what it means, Amanina, to 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 behave without um, to be, behave without uh, pratishta, without the desire for recognition, is really to behave with modesty. So modesty doesn't just mean you know clothing or covering one's hair or something like that. There's a whole kind of trend now. Um, um, well, not it's not a trend. I shouldn't say that, but modest fashion. Even we you see it a lot in um, Islamic communities. Um, the women have kind of embraced this idea of, of um, modest fashion, but at the same time, it's very materialistic and there's makeup and, you know, designer clothes. It's, it's a little bit bizarre, but anyhow, m you know, modesty. So to be like a, a blade of grass in the, in the lawn, to not draw one attention to oneself. A really good example, I think, I heard this from a devotee, I can't remember who, but... Um, they, they described it as salt. So, you know, salt is like the most important ingredient in anything one cooks, but it never draws attention to itself. It's very rare that you'll, you know, unless there's a problem, there's very rare that you'll be like, wow, this dish was perfectly salted. No, it's, it, it, it augments and showcases all the other ingredients. So um, all the other flavors, and we generally will glorify all the other flavors, the oregano or the cumin or whatever. Um, so, you know, we'll glorify every ingredient except the salt, but in fact, it is the most important. Um, so we should try to be like salt, you know, um, in, in that sense, by lifting everybody else up as much as we can, offering respect to everybody else, showcasing everybody else's um, achievements and not not desiring to be showcased ourselves. Gumaraj gives the example, he gives uh, an example of somebody who is donating uh, secretly. So they were putting $108 in his bank account every month and he had no idea who it was. They didn't want to be known. And, but his mind went to them. You know, he was thinking about them, who is doing this? So service without recognition. Um, it, it's, you know, it's like service without other people's knowledge. So it means you do something nice for somebody without wanting to be um, you know, glorified or thanked for it. So it can just be even just like, I've seen devotees do it a lot, is they arrange shoes, you know, outside the temple room. They organize the shoes and make them all nicer. They put the shoes so that somebody can just step right into them and they don't draw attention to themselves. They ju just do that. And this is the solution to, the solution to pratishta, the way to avoid this is, is given, you know, um, amanina manadena, so by offering respect to others. So, um, and this is the genuine feeling of someone this wanting to offer respect to uh, offering respect to others um, of someone who's truly experienced kind of the reality of God. You know, there's nowhere that God is not, and so they they can easily offer respect in every direction. You know, um, you also practice that by putting aside one's pride. Um, you know, it can it can very easily be practiced. Both the Srimad Bhagavatam and the Chaitanya Charitamrita advise this practice of offering respect, um, offering respect physically in the form of dandavats, but offering respect to all. Um, Krishna advises Uddhava in the Uddhava Gita that by constant, constantly meditating on him as being situated in every being, um, all of one's bad qualities will, will disappear. And he says, quoting him, he says, ignoring the ridicule of one's friends, one should renounce the bodily conception of life and offer obeisances to all living beings. Even the dogs, cows, donkeys, and untouchables falling flat on the ground like a stick. So, I mean, it's it's 
it's you should try it. It's it's something else to offer obeisances, you know, even to a tree or or offer obeisances to the cows. There's something powerful in like actually moving one's physical body into a submissive position. Now we do that in the temple and we do that in front of devotees, you know. But it's easy to say, oh yes. I mean, words are kind of cheap, you know, it's, you can talk and talk and talk uh, like I'm doing, but, um, you know, words are kind of cheap, but to actually get down on the ground in front of something is is powerful. And uh, again, about Islam, I was watching a few videos on it. There was a just a young man, I think he was like an Irish convert to Islam. And, you know, he was really sincere. He made a really nice video and he said, try, just try getting down on the ground and putting your head on the floor and putting yourself in that position of of submission it's a very you know a very powerful practice and um but the idea we're talking about here is basically you know because each body is is um basically a temple of hari you know he he lives in the heart of all living beings it means that everybody is worth worthy of respect and you know there's a certain etiquette that one has in the temple um you know one is respectful one doesn't yell or or speak rudely inside of the temple um you know, so this is, you know, the bodies of, of everybody being the dwelling place of the Lord. This temple etiquette can also be extended towards each other in that we should not yell at each other. We should not slap each other. You know, so regardless of the state of the temple, even, you know, even if a temple is uh, broken or ugly or uh, dirty or it's designed in a foreign architectural style, you know, one still offers respect to it as, as a house of God. And, you know, we offer respect to the devotees um, with Tulsi standing over a, a, as a witness. Um, again, sh again, you know, so we re offer respect to everyone, but we also res offer respect to, to the devotees every morning. Tulsi is the tree that stands over that, um, witnessing that. And, you know, every religion kind of says that, you, you know, we can't just confine it to offering respect to the devotees. Every religion says, um, you know, you can't confine your respect to your own group. You must have respect for everybody, even, you know, extending it to your enemies. And devotees are, you know, they're interested in preaching a lot. They're interested in teaching people about kind of the spiritual dimension of life, the highest welfare work and awakening people to their spiritual nature and potential. But when people are treated you know, when people are treated with respect, when they're treated with reverence and respect, uh, they're shown a genuine interest in their ideas um, or their experiences. They come, they become conscious of their own sacred worth. So it's really the best way of preaching is to, to respect others because it causes people to, to become aware of their own worth. And... Um, we're running out of time here, so I'm just on the last ver the last line, so it should be perfect. I might just go over a couple minutes, but kirtaniya sada hari. So one should glorify hari incessantly. So non-stop chanting, non-stop service. This is the idea of the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, um, this idea of astakalya lila seva, service 24 hours a day. I don't think you find this in other places. Um, but it's it's kind of a hard hard thing to understand in a sense. How can you, how can you chant constantly? Um, once I was reading this book called The Way of the Pilgrim, I think it's like a Russian, it's a Russian Christian book, but they have a very similar practice about chanting like the Jesus prayer or something on a rosary. And it was an interesting idea because they were saying actually you should sometimes, I mean, there's a lot to be said about just chanting a smaller number of rounds, but with attention. I mean, that's very good. We should do that. And it was just interesting because they kind of spoke about it in a different way in this book. They said, actually, we have very little power to control our mind. We have very little power to chant, you know, four good rounds. In a sense, that becomes very yogic, very like an ascending thing. By my own volition, I will, you know, they were saying what we do have within our power is to chant constantly, to just constantly chant. It might not be good. It, it might be distracted. It might be that. But that is what is within the power of the human. So anyways, it was like a different angle on it. And I appreciated it um, a lot. But but, you know, not necessarily that I think it's, you know, the best thing to do. But anyhow. And I, and I was thinking about this Kirtaniya Sadahadi. I think also what it's referring to is that is, you know, uh, Kirtan in the context of pure bhakti. Savai pumsam paro dharma yato bhakti radhoksaje. Ahai tuki apratiyata yatma suprasiddhi. So this apratiyata, it means uninterrupted, um, unobstructed, 
um, Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. I think it can be kind of seen as kind of like with the tension, any time, any place, this type of thing. You know, Bhaktivinoda actually brings up this point. He says in, in uh, a text called Sri Sri Godruma Chandra Agya. Now, I have not read it, but I read the quote from it. And it says that he, he basically says, paraphrasing, like, what does this mean? Does this mean we should just chant 24 hours and starve to death? And he says, no, not that people should always chant while completely desisting from all other bodily activities, which, well, will bring about the destruction of the body, but that regardless of one's position, one should remain in that situation and chant the holy name. This is an emphasis of Bhakti Thakur. One should remain in, the, in one's position and chant the holy name. So that's kind of, he's saying, um, he's kind of saying, you know, that, that that's how one should understand Kirtaniya Sadahari. And sometimes I kind of think of this as just like, you know, like the heartbeat or like breathing. Um, it's so close to one. It's, it's, you know, basically one's very life, your heart beating and taking breath and it's going on automatically, you know, or at least, um, you know, it's going on kind of like as a, as a natural reflex, just the way the body works. And I think, you know, it, at least this feeling of chanting Harinam, um, you know, if it starts to become closer and closer to oneself, then one's very breath kind of extending it to this idea that maybe you're not chanting 24 hours a day, not chanting constantly, but getting to the position where the holy name is like your very heartbeat. It's like your very breath. It's going on constantly. So those are just some thoughts on the four, the you know, the four, actually the five, the five lines of the verse, or the, sorry, the five things described in the verse. And just to conclude, I'll, I would just say that this really much is kind of the the defining verse of the Vaishnavas. It's the thread that kind of runs through the entirety of the tradition, the entirety of our practice, through all of our saints. Um, it's the description of the Vaishnavas, really, you know, um, so Kripa Sinu, I mean, the devotees are the desire trees. The devotees are trees, the trees of tolerance, you know, ocean of compassion, the, the humble Patidapavana saviors of all, all fallen people by, by showing people their, you know, their sacred worth through respect and whatnot. So both, you know, from both ends, this verse is there. It gives us the tool to achieve offenseless chanting, by you know you know it gives us the tools to achieve offenseless chanting chanting by by teaching us how to defend ourselves from from aparad and from um uh, anarthas and these are you know these are the things that keep us out of sadhu sangha and pure pure chanting can only happen in the context of sadhu sangha so you know this verse is giving us the tools to always stay in sadhu sangha always stay in the community um, of devotees and also it's it's you know describing it ornaments and propels the pure chanting on into eternity like with the advanced devotees you see these are the ornaments of the advanced devotees and again the best way to develop these qualities is to really just spend time and apply oneself to the chanting because giving time you know to something is, is the most valuable thing no amount of money no no billion trillion million dollars can buy back even one second of time that's passed you know, and just to end, Prabhupada was very famous for not wasting time or money, but he was also, he was very f famous for not wasting time. And up until the very end, you know, the very last moments, he was on his deathbed dictating um, um, his purports to the Srimad Bhagavatam, kind of giving to others, you know, like, like the Kalpavriksha tree, like the, the, he, you know, like the, the, like devotees are supposed to be like this tree, constantly giving his very, and it, it was interesting because whenever his, um, Disappearance Day happens. I go back and look at his last volume of the Chaitanya, uh, sorry, of the of the Srimad Bhagavatam, where he he leaves in the Brahma Vimohan Lila, and the last words um, of his very last purport, purport describing Lord Brahma um, after he had offended Krishna by stealing the coward boys and everything. So after Lord Brahma was getting up off the ground offering dandavats and about to praise Krishna, you know, offer kirtan to Krishna, Prabhupada's words are. Uh, just to quote, he said, Brahma began to offer prayers with great humility, respect, and attention. And I thought that was really powerful, that these were the last three words in his, um, in his you know, famous Bhagavatam commentaries. His last three words were great humility, respect, and attention. 
So, you know, these are what are embodied in the third verse of the Shikshastakam. So, uh, I just went about five minutes over, but that's the end. It's It's been very nice. It's been a, uh, very uh, good for me to to give these classes because it's forced me to, to, you know, to look into this verse. And it's definitely something that I need to cultivate, which is why I chose the, to do this verse so that I could, um, you know, cultivate these qualities more. So I'll just ask if there's if anybody has any comments or corrections or any questions, please feel free. Haribol. Can you hear Haribol. me? Yes, I can. I can see you too. Woohoo! Hey, I, I, I don't have any questions, but I just wanted to say thank you for your classes. I found this series uh, very inspiring and also thought provoking. So I'm I'm very happy you chose this verse and uh, gave these classes. And I, I hope to hear you soon again on this Atva Vivek series. So Haribol. Haribol, thank you very much. That's very, very kind of you, Haripri. Thank you. Does anybody else have anything that they would like to say? Any questions? Okay, well, thank. It's nice to be have been with all of you, and um, I will see you on the internet somewhere else. I'm sure at some point. So, vancha kalpa terubhyascha kripa sindhu bhayevacha patita nam pavanebio vaishnavebio namunama. Hey Krishna, thank you. Ivan Kovarasandara Prabhu Ki Chai.